I would probably say to the 26 year old, 27 year old, you're going to be glad you did this because it defined you and it gave yourself meaning. And I would have said, good job. Hi, everyone, and welcome to All Go First. I'm Jessica Minhas, and today, Erin Gray, the founder of Amp Earthit, joins me from Austin, Texas. Erin's story is really remarkable. When he was just 27 years old, he took on legal guardianship of his mother after she suffered a debilitating neurological disease, just as he was starting his career. This would change the course of his life and has helped him bring care to hundreds and thousands of people. Aaron talks about how he developed his unique purpose out of the toughest season of his life. And I adore Aaron. I've known him for a few years. His spirit is just so lovely, and I find his story so touching. I'm excited for you to hear it. Let's get started. This is so special. I'm so excited to do this. Aaron and I are actually recording this during COVID and during race riots at the moment. So it's a little bit of a crazy time, but that is why you're perfect to come on the show and share your wisdom with us. You are the founder and CEO of Ampertha, which is the leading search and referrals program in the U.S. serving millions of users, most major health plans, hospital systems, foundations, and tens of thousands of community-based organizations. But I think you are far more than that. Your life's calling is really to be a public advocate for the underserved in the U.S. and I would say around the world. And it's it's really evident by the work that you do that that is just in every cell of your being. Well, thank you. You're very kind. There's so much out there, so many problems out there. And it's exciting. I, I feel like when I look back at my upbringing, uh, my mom's personalities, my dad's personality, various interests where I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I grew up, sort of all pointed to this mission. I, I feel 100% certain that I'm doing the work that I was meant to do. Yeah. Aaron, you and I met in 2014. Wow. So long ago already. <laughs> and what struck me so much is how kind you are. I was suffering from so much social anxiety. We were at the United Nations for the Global Accelerator for Entrepreneurs, I think. And I was standing in the corner, literally sweating through my clothes. And you just struck up a conversation with me and you were so gentle and, and patient. And I was like, oh my gosh, this feels so nice to be talking to someone who's so accomplished, but also is making me feel so at ease. And I think that is just just it's just who you are and it's again it's so 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 special gosh i remember that i remember feeling completely out of place <laughs> I, don't, I didn't know why i was invited because we were very small at that time and i look around and there's people from all over the world there's people from very wealthy families and i'm glad <laughs> you know, maybe you looked <laughs> like somebody who was maybe more like me <laughs> i think we were both a little feeling like a fish out of water Oh my gosh, absolutely. That was only four years into the company, and 10 years later, you have indexed over 350,000 programs on your platform. And what inspired me so much about your approach to it is that you've said in another interview that you are designing dignity and that you're wanting to help curb suffering. Can you unpack what Ampertha is and give us a visual into just the work that you do? I'll share a story, which, which I think is relevant 
I grew up in a small town, Olean, New York, which is about an hour and a half south of Buffalo in Western New York. It's close to the Pennsylvania border. And my mom, she struggled a little bit with mental illness, undiagnosed, and worked really hard in and out of counseling. And, and it, was, it was tough for her. And, and you know, one, of the, one of the side effects of that was her and my dad split up a few times. We were a blue collar family. And when that would happen, depending on her job situation, we would go on food stamps and things like that. And I remember somewhere around, I don't know, elementary school, as a kid, you go to the grocery store with your mom. That's usually, I think a lot of kids want to go, right? And then it turned into something where I didn't want to go anymore. And I remember specifically that transition. I've been thinking about that a lot more lately as she's getting older. And it used to be that food stamps were actually paper bills and just like a different sort of currency. And you'd go in line and you'd get your groceries for the house and you'd sort of pay with, with food stamps and certain things you couldn't pay for. And and I just sort of remember the reaction of others, what I felt, even as a little kid, the judgment. You could see other people looking yeah, in the store at you guys. Differently. And then it got to the point where I just, I didn't want to go anymore. Wow. So you really remember in that particular moment in the grocery store, realizing that you and your family were different. I, I don't remember the exact time when it happened, but I remember that being seen by other classmates was a fear of, you know, being on food stamps, being made fun of and things like that. And so I didn't go anymore. And, and now that I look back, I feel bad about it a little bit because, you know, she was doing the best she could, but that's not a feeling. And when I talk to other people who experienced the same thing at that time period, yeah, it's relatively ubiquitous and especially mm -hmm. small towns where everybody knows each other. Absolutely. And so how do you, when, when we talk about sort of designing dignity in every step, one of the public policies that happened was the advent of the EBT card, which is a card people use when they're enrolled in food stamps. And, you know, it, it takes away some of the stigma where it's yeah. a lot more efficient to use these EBT cards than, you know, printing a whole separate currency for, for the purposes of food. And that is, that improved the social safety net through technology. And I think it's a really good thing that technology might have helped in a very small way that shame sort of associated with it where you can sit there and you pull out the card and nobody wow. needs to see it it's, you know the cashier probably sees it i know through my own life experiences that nobody wants to be dependent nobody wants people want to be able to pay their bills on time yeah they want to be self-sufficient it's not cheating and sort of all of those things but i've always remembered that and the stigma that is associated with being dependent on public services goes other places because what happens is sometimes that stigma is so strong that people suffer unnecessarily. Yeah, I just, I'm thinking about what you're saying. You refer to people on your platform seeking care as seekers and those providing support as helpers. And what really stands out to me is how you humanize the experience. And when I hear you, kind of sharing the economics behind it all. I'm like, wow, you know, humanizing an experience and offering dignity to people actually does save us money. Oh, totally. A lot, I believe. And the seekers like it better. The seekers want to self-navigate. They don't want to talk on the phone. They don't want to feel that feeling. And it's also a heck of a lot cheaper. 
to allow seekers to check the status of their benefits themselves or to apply online or to figure that out themselves. And so empowering too. Totally. Yeah. They, they feel like they have control and it's cheaper. What does empowerment mean to you or mean for you? You know, because I just think of you as that kid in the grocery store at 10 years old, feeling really disempowered and embarrassed. And what I hear you kind of saying is there's some shame attached to it. And I can see how your work now is so powerful because you're kind of erasing the shame in a lot of ways. That's a, that's a good question. It is, it, for me, empowerment means feeling like you have control over something. And, 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 and as the world gets a little bit more complex, well, I guess I'll just put it this way. Money is at the core of whether or not one feels as if they have control over something. It, it's just the way it is. Yeah. And there's a basic level of control, meaning if I can pay for my basic needs, if I can pay my rent, if I can pay for food, if I can pay my bills on time, th that's sort of the, you know, the base. And for a large percent of the population, they can't. And it is a, they're not in control. The landlord's in control or the light bill company is in control or, or others. And so you listen to that enough and you feel that enough that there's, there's less that you can control. Mm, yeah. And I think that has a long-term effect on people. When do you feel like you're in control? Well, when you can pay your bills on time and you can write a check and you, know, you can begin to do the things that happen that's there. When did you, you know, it takes, it takes most kids a little while to realize that our experiences are different. I didn't know that I didn't know that I could label what happened in my house as like abuse or even that my grandfather, he, he was an alcoholic, but I didn't realize until re recently, I'm like, oh, actually he was an addict. That makes him an addict. And then he had, you know, mental health stuff. He was incredibly depressed. He had PTSD. He was having nightmares. So I think it's just taken time to wrap language around everything for me personally. You have mentioned some of your talks that kind of, you started realizing that your mom was a little different. Yeah, from a very early age. She was very opinionated. One of the things about my mom is she didn't let herself get walked over. She was tough. She is tough. She still is. <laughs> I get calls all the time about incidents at the nursing home. But she was a fighter. In many cases, she stuck up for uh, people uh, that couldn't stick up for themselves. Uh, she had a huge heart and that got us into trouble sometimes because her, her heart was bigger than her pocketbook. But I, I love that about her, but she struggled with uh, self-control. Mm. There were moments where she disagreed with something in a grocery store and would get into a fight uh, yelling at, you know, the clerk or was overly sensitive and, and it got embarrassing basically. She had a bad temper um, and break things. And, but the days after, she, she felt really, really bad and was one of the most loving people that you could possibly be around. Her heart is a heart of gold, and I'm lucky to have witnessed that, but just struggled with her emotions. Hmm. And it wasn't until probably late 30s, early 40s, that I, I began to understand that stability at home, uh, those that maybe had a little bit more stable home where parents knew how to have real conversations with their children, 
have a heck of an advantage in life. And it, it you know, yeah, it wasn't until I, I started doing that work in my life that I, I recognized that difference. And what that, yeah. what that results in is at least emotionally, those kids start out on second base because they know how to share when they're upset and they have somebody to listen and, you know, they get advice, they get coaching, you know, <laughs> yeah. birth till 18 and, and even beyond that. That's great. But again, this goes back to valuing the turmoil, valuing the controversy is kids who grew up with turmoil. There's they're they're tough as hell. They're street smart. They don't expect everything to be cotton candy and roses. And I love people who have been through shit. <laughs> I could just hang out with them and there's a knowing feeling and, and I love them. I, I don't relate to people that haven't faced it. I wish I could relate better. I love your perspective on that. I know that I've really struggled with the resentment for sure. And especially starting a nonprofit, being a startup and being, we go back to the UN, you know, standing there among all these very successful, privileged people and feeling like, oh, if I just had that secure attachment at home or <laughs> when I watch TV and I see good parents or a good household situation and I'm like, you're complaining about this? <laughs> what do you, you have a house, you have money for your shoes, <laughs> you have parents that tutor you? It wasn't until I was in counseling two years ago that I was like, man, like, I just wish I would have gotten better grades. And my counselor was like, you know that most kids, their parents help them with homework. And it was so like, what? <laughs> they have tutoring? Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so I've, I've struggled with that a little bit. And I love, I love that you see the triumph in it. How did you come to that point? Were you ever resentful? Or was it always like, kind of embracing that resiliency? Oh, gosh, for me, I was never resentful towards my mom, because I remember her heart. And, and I, I recognized at a young age that she just didn't have the self-control for some reason. And, and I don't know why, because she was, she was always so loving, but it was still very, very tumultuous, especially you know, even before she got sick while I was in high school, it was, uh, it got to a point where she really struggled, really struggled with self-control. And, um, and it was, a, it was miserable. You know, I, I remember moments where we're, we're sitting on the couch enjoying a TV show and she would be taking a nap and I would hear her ankles crack as she walked down the stairs. And there was just a fear of dread. Um, mm -hmm. um, never physically, you know, um, uh, abusive or anything like that, but just like a gigantic black uh, cloud, you know, coming down. Yeah. But uh, you look back and then meeting a counselor, sticking with it, I, I started, be began to realize that, whoa, 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 you know, there's this thing called feelings and you talk about it and somebody, somebody can sense when you're upset and they draw it out of you and you go for a walk and you get ice cream and you feel better. It's like a TV show. I, I, it did not occur to me at all until more recently within the last eight years that people have that advantage. But at the same time, I met people along the way that had that advantage. And I, as I've gotten to know them, I, I see a trade-off and I see, well, they had that, but boy, they don't have this. 
<laughs> and, and that is really valuable. As a project manager, as an entrepreneur, you have to learn to expect that things are going to go wrong. Shit happens in life. Oh my gosh. Yes. As an entrepreneur, for sure. You, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I see what you mean about just the ability to, to bounce back. I'm learning to try and have a balance between the two, but that there's like the ability to be resilient and expect like that something might happen and be able to have think ahead, but also to not be so hypervigilant that I'm anxious all the time and worried and how to dig myself out of anxiety. So that's been like a learning, a learning thing for me. I want to take us back to that moment with your mom when you were 17. That's really started your work and your mom gets sick. I had the same thing that your mom had, which is really wild encephalitis. What I'm sensing is that the house was, there were good things happening, but it was kind of tense. Like you just never knew when something was going to go wrong. And I, I definitely can relate to that with my grandfather to the extent that I can. Cause I just am like, what if I say something wrong? When he's, when is he going to explode? And then he had a stroke when I was 15 and our caregiving roles reversed. And that was complex because he still had that fiery reaction that was very just mean and not nice. And then being in a caretaker role as a teenager complicates things. So, so what happened when she started getting sick? Can you paint the picture for us? Yeah. Yeah. I remember it vividly. It was the summer before my senior year. It was a actually a maybe a couple of weeks before my birthday. I don't remember the exact day, but she was, had flu-like symptoms and her job at the time, which was a job she really liked. She was a, a janitor at the Jamestown Community College. She worked nights, but one of the benefits was uh, she got to take classes for free as an employee. So she would take classes, a couple classes a semester, and she, she really liked it. And uh, it had insurance, really good insurance. It was, it was a good job. She was proud. She had a shirt with her name on it. She had been a waitress and a nurse's aide and all, all those things before. But we were doing well. My parents were back together. It was a positive situation. I remember thinking, finally, things are normal. I, I, I literally remember thinking that. She was actually quite moody in leading up to that. But you know, that, that's just her. You get used to it. And then one day, she just looks like she's just out like a light, it just flu-like symptoms. She goes to the emergency room. I think she was there maybe a night or something like that. And then they sent her back home thinking it's just a bad case of the flu. And then a few more days went by and I remember her laying on the couch and I remember she was having trouble, couldn't get anything down. And then she went to the ER and um, they realized what some, something was happening in her brain and it's a small town hospital and they waited too long. And so they, they decided to rush her to Sayre, Pennsylvania, which was an emerge, which was a, at the time a sort of a brain specialty place. And uh, they were going to take her by helicopter because you know it was it was bad, but it was broken or getting fixed. So they took her by EMT. Normally, I want to say it was a five-hour drive, but they got there in half the time because they took an ambulance 100 miles an hour down Highway 17. Uh, got there. I heard she flatlined twice in the back of the ambulance. My dad wasn't there. I wasn't there. And she did recover at Sayre Medical Center. And they, that's when they diagnosed her with encephalitis. And she recovered there for a couple of months. 
she didn't, she lost all of her memory, uh, at least 20 years of her memory, the previous 20 years. It's like those files on the hard drive mm -hmm. of her brain were just mm -hmm. completely erased. And um, so, which of course yeah. she didn't know who I was. She knew my dad. Uh, she actually thought my older sister, uh, Rebecca, was, you know, a toddler. And Becky was in college at the time in Texas. So she, um, I remember one point after she got back from the hospital and was recovering at home, our lives completely changed. You know, it was. Yeah. It, and you were 11th grader? I had just started my senior year. How was that for you? Because I'm just thinking about the anxiousness and anxiety with her explosiveness. And then suddenly she's in this other state. My dad took care of her for nine years. I went off to college, uh, went and got my first job. And then in 2002, he couldn't do it anymore. She was still mobile. So she still had that fiery personality, but she did not have the memory. So she still thought she was right all the time, but she wasn't. <laughs> so that's a terrible combination. It is really a terrible combination. <laughs> so I very naively, you know, it was either that or she would enter the, the state hospital system. Wow, that's a big decision. Yeah, and you know, so I-, I And you're early in your career. 26, yeah, 26 years yeah. old. And not knowing and not knowing how bad it had gotten, you know, I moved her to Texas tried to find an independent living situation with supports. She very much needed 24-hour care. Um, and so I'm still her legal guardian. I've been so for the last 18 years. But she was still young. She was 57 years old. There's a gap for folks that are disabled but are still somewhat cognizant. Who knows what would have happened she, you know, had I not been there. But um, I certainly wasn't feeding her and doing the things like other caretakers are. But I was there coordinating, filling out applications, talking with social workers, talking with doctors and things like that. And um, she'd be in a 24-hour care Medicaid facility, and, and then she'd have an incident, and they'd send her to the hospital because she's having yeah, so stressful mental health incident. Uh, I get the calls at 2 in the morning. Um, I got one at 4 in the morning this week, actually. Yeah. But it's been 18 years, and and also become very thankful for people that have dedicated their lives to caring for people with disabilities and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. What would you say to your 17-year-old self when the incident happened? And what would you say to yourself, the 26-year-old that is, is at that moment taking on that big caretaking role? To the 17-year-old, man, that's a hard question. <laughs> I'd probably say there's no possible way you could understand why this happened, but have faith. There's a reason. And it's, it's, it's going to give you meaning in your life. And the 26 year old, I remember driving on us highway 183 shortly after this all happened and and I was going through, you know, finding a place for her and, you know, getting kicked out of one place and you know, finding more stable situations. And I remember remembering why, you know, my friends from graduate school and their biggest problems are related to dating or fantasy baseball um, <laughs> drafts and things like that. And of course they went through some things, but I, I, I was oversimplifying it. It's not fair. But then I remembered 
you know, other stories of people that I knew that were going through divorces. And I remember vividly that moment driving on 183 in my Ford Escape in my late 20s and remembering everybody has something. And from that moment on, I, I put myself in the shoes of the people that I knew that have to deal with their own battles and, and shit. Everybody has something. And this is my thing. And it sort of went away after that. So going back, I would probably say to the 26-year-old, 27-year-old, you're going to be glad you did this because it defined you. And it gave yourself meaning. And I would have said, good job. <laughs> and it is going to suck. And I, I believe that to this day. One of the things we say at our company is that we're all seekers eventually. And Yeah, <laughs> that's so true. That's so true. I almost feel in my mid-30s, late 30s now that I'm kind of lucky because I already did the taking care of parents thing when when my grandfather was ill my grandmother passed when I was quite young I mean my my grandparents weren't my parents and so when I have friends now who are taking care of their parents I feel honestly really lucky because I can't imagine what that would be like to have a career to have children to have a family and then also be carrying the challenge of taking care of your parent and the emotional component of that and how kind of you become like an orphan in this way too. So I feel kind of, I guess, yeah, to your point, I, I feel blessed. And I know that for me with I'll go first, I am driven by the idea that, man, if my grandfather had access to trauma recovery care and PTSD, maybe he wouldn't have become an addict. Maybe our lives would have been different. Maybe he wouldn't have suffered so much in the end because he, did that to himself in a lot of ways. So I, I know that that drives me and I love, I'm just thinking about how, yeah, I guess that has given me meaning and it's just been hard to get to that point, I think. And the sadness that comes with it, that's where I'm still learning how to process just the grief around it all. Yeah. Truthfully, probably workaholism it's another way of, of avoiding this. And I, I probably suffer from that to avoid processing things. And, and I don't have that figured out at all. Yeah, I, I can empathize a lot with that, trying to learn how to turn off. And I think if you're in a caretaker role, even if you're not running a company, but you're a mom or a dad, it's really hard to kind of, face ourselves and be okay with who we are and I was just curious you know you've had such a journey and you are so accomplished this is somewhere I struggle with do you feel proud of yourself sometimes I do one of the things that I'm um I that I adopted um at first I didn't do it very much but now I do it more consistently is um I bought a journal and I started journaling when things were really, really tough. And I'd get out a paper and pen it. And on the hard days, you can write 10 pages because you're angry and it's, it's, <laughs> I go back and read and I cringe. I, I, uh, uh, I did go back and read, you know, some recently, but then I started doing it, adopting it more consistently. And here's how I would summarize that is so many people don't tell anybody how they're really feeling. And for me, here's how the transition went. 
I went from journaling, which probably sounded like a job interview where you're editing yourself to beginning to journal. And then I started this thing where I would journal and I, I would not edit myself. And then I'd rip it to shreds afterwards because there's a fear of judgment or discovery or whatever the case may be. You'd get judged or shame in the feelings that you had. And then it finally got to the point where I quit caring. And then after journaling and sharing the things that I was fearful of and the stories that I would remember, I finally got the courage to start to tell other people. Wow. So it was kind of like a practice. Yeah. You're practicing and strengthening that muscle. Yeah. It's, it's, it's easier to tell an object. I gave a, a small um, uh, breakout session at a conference on journaling recently uh, online. Uh, I was researching quotes and Anne Frank said, uh, paper is more patient than people, which is a brilliant quote. And uh, it's true. I mean, you can tell a paper anything. And, and uh, for me, the journal is the journal collectively, the journal knows me better than any human is and ever will. And I know that that journal will always be with me because chances are I'll always be able to afford a, a, you know, a pen and paper. Uh, in fact, here's my current journal right here. I was journaling this morning. So that has been a huge, huge thing for me because what happens as humans, we don't talk and maybe people can't afford a counselor or maybe they're afraid of the stigma of it. It's an investment that I'm fortunate enough to make by, by getting a counselor. And, but before I could get there, I needed to learn, I needed to journal and I needed to get that stuff out. And I think every single time I've journaled, regardless of what I was going through, I've always felt better when I close a journal. Yeah. It's like working out. You don't regret it. Yeah. I, what I am just really amazed by is hearing you talk about your, I mean, the hope with Algor First is really supporting people and being able to articulate their inner experience and support them as they seek help if they decide to do that and, and um, bring a community around them. But I'm just realizing, oh yeah, we can kind of go first in our stories and it doesn't have to be with another person. It can just be, maybe that's the biggest hurdle actually is going first with ourselves and being able to reflect and look back and read the paper entries that we wrote before. I think that takes a lot of courage to look back at yourself. Yeah. That, if you're not naturally a talkative person and, and, and don't have people that you could be close to and, and really just say the things that are on your mind that you don't feel comfortable saying to anybody. If you have that, then great. But if you don't, then you're keeping it inside and you're judging yourself and you're hating yourself. Absolutely. Definitely struggle with that for sure. For sure. And that is hard to untangle. It has been hard for me to untangle. I think it also kind of has translated into my interactions with people and into work. And I know that and I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but the idea of imposter syndrome and having to show up and how to deal with not feeling like you deserve to be there. Yeah. The older I get, the, the more I'm beginning to realize that nobody really knows what they're doing. They're just making it up the best they can. I, I have the same feeling just like everybody else just, you do your best and you, you just have to have faith that that works in the end and no matter what. What does faith mean to you? Well, that's a, 
<laughs> another hard question. But so I grew up in a church and there were good people there, but I, I didn't like it. I felt like they judged my mom. And then probably several years ago, I decided that I was going to read one, one chapter of the New Testament every day because I'd never read the Bible. I went to church. I, I was just like forced to go basically. And I did read the New Testament um, and I finally finished it um, a couple years ago. And I was really inspired by it. And a lot of the things in the New Testament just is not the garbage that is repeated by the mainstream on both sides. Yeah. It's inspiring. And reading it as an adult, it, it forced me to think, wait a second, this is a long time ago and people were going through the same crap. You sort of realize that, wait, people had really bad anxiety 2000 years ago. <laughs> it was just about <laughs> different things. And that, for me, that, that brought in a lot of perspective. And I try to remember that. I, I, you know, I, there, there's a hope that there is meaning and that there, there is reasons why these things happen. And the whole concept of worry about today versus um, tomorrow. Yeah, just being present. Yeah, and I, I do not have that figured out <laughs> by any means being present. But yes, exactly that. Worry about today's problems. And so in, in my interactions, uh, I've been trying harder as an adult to assume the best. And it's hard for me because I'm still that cynical kid that assumes the worst sometimes. And that's where I have a, lot, a long way to go because I can tell you the six ways that somebody's plotting something, but letting that go and sort of you know, doing your best to help the person that you're talking to and then just sort of hoping that that's the right thing to do what it does is that may never happen, but it, it leaves yourself feeling just you, you controlled what you can control. And that's meant a lot. That's so wise. And just when you fear or have an anxiety or feel threatened to just love them instead. And I can really see that in your company, even in the work too, because I know it takes a lot to be a startup and you really, you and your company really lead with love. And even when I've been emailing with your team, it just is so, it's so beautiful and it's so evident and it inspires me so much and you inspire me so much. Um, one thing as we wrap up that I wanted to ask you, this is for myself and I hope this helps listeners too, is that you love your job so much and I can see that you, that you love it so much. It comes through and everything that you touch with your work and how did you find your calling? How did you, how did you figure out what your giftings were? How did you make meaning of your story? I wish, <laughs> I wish I could say that I consciously did it, but I, I just can't. I, and, and I, I really just can't. I, who, who knew? So, you know, the, the feelings, seeing the turmoil as a kid, seeing illness as a kid, seeing, the social services sector as a kid and the have and the have nots as a kid, you, know, you sort of file that away, deciding to be a programmer out of college just because that was a hot job. So now I was a programmer and I had that in the back of my mind, becoming my mom's legal guardians, going back to graduate school to study public policy, reading about Lyndon Johnson, you know, just getting into government, social service delivery for the years that I did that. And I didn't know it. I had no clue that they would be tied together. No intention. I never wanted to start a business. And then I, I really honestly feel that 
it, it's, it's, it's out of my control. It's above me. You know, it, it like, it's just, there's been too many weird situations that have happened that why in the world would I need those skills? So when I started the business, I couldn't afford to hire programmers. So I dusted off my programming books and built a search. I understood and empathized with what it's like to navigate people because I lived it. I understood and empathized how terrible it is to run these service social service programs because I lived it. And it all sort of came together. So uh, this makes me believe that we all have a higher calling and that we're not intelligent enough to see what's happening. And I hope, you know, I hope that's the case. So I, <laughs> probably a couple of years in, it became crystal clear to me that this is why I'm here. And, uh, but it, it wasn't before, it was just sort of during. Wow, that's so beautiful. I love that. You, Aaron, you are such a gift and I'm, you really are. And I, I know I've said it before, but I just admire you so much and I'm so inspired by you and your heart is just, uh, it's just amazing. When I tell people about you, I always get a little teary eyed because I'm like, this man and his mission is, uh, is beyond him. And it, you're just, yeah, the kindest person, one of the kindest people I've ever met. And it's always stuck with me. How can we, how can we get involved? How can we use Aunt Bertha as a tool? What can we be doing in our communities to support what you're doing and your mission really? So one, um, uh, thank you so much. You're really kind and, and, and I really, really appreciate it. It means a lot. I made my day. I, I enjoyed talking. A couple of things. One is sharefindhelp.org, which is currently, uh, that'll be around forever, but uh, share that with folks. Uh, it, it gives preference to COVID-19 related programs. There's a lot of people suffering as a result of unemployment and everything that's going along with it. That gets the word out and helps people alleviate some of the anxiety. Maybe they haven't run out of money yet, but they should know that there's options. And there's some amazing nonprofits everywhere in the United States that are standing up and helping during that time. And so people shouldn't be anxious for no reason. So just knowing that safety net is there, they could just go to findhelp.org, put on your phones, do whatever. So spreading the word is very helpful. Secondly, if you know about a, a nonprofit that should be listed there, but isn't listed in your, in your zip code, let us know. That helps our data team uh, update it, keep it current. And it's ampbertha.com. Ampertha.com is how you find about us and our company. Findhelp.org is a, a search, which is part of our company that you can learn more. It, basically, it's, it's a little bit more tailored to people in need right now. Aaron, you're such a gift. I just want to shake you and say <laughs> you're such a gift to people. I mean, truly. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you for the work you do. And wow, just giving people dignity when they seek help. I mean, incredible, incredible. Thank you, Jess. I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>